All right, we are going to be picking up in Genesis 18 as we are looking at the life of Abraham together. And Kosi is going to be reading the scripture for us tonight. So Kosi, thank you. If you will um, unmute yourself and then read for us Genesis 18, 16 through 27, and then 32 through 33. And if you've got a Bible, you can follow along there or it's on the, the slide on your screen. Right. <laughs> Before I say this, um, or I can say, I'll read the verse. I just like, to, it's good to see all of you guys again. Um, it's been a while. And uh, I just thank all of you, you know, all the messages and the prayers. And it's, it's meant so much to me, you know, while I've been this recovering, I'd say. Um, but by the grace of God, I'm, I'm here with you guys. And it's good to see all of you guys. So, um, okay, let me <laughs> start. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? What am I about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised, promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the out outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see them, wherever I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again for this once. Suppose ten are found there, he answered. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Here's the reading. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kosi. Um, well, it is it is so good to be with you all, and uh, it's glad that it's good to have you with us. Um, I miss being with you. I miss seeing you. I miss hearing your laughter and miss hugging your necks. And um, it's good to see parents and siblings here too. Um, to see that you're with people who love you. And uh, one of the reasons I love Zoom. Uh, first off, I gotta say something. Have y'all seen, you know, in, in Talladega Nights when Ricky Bobby's getting interviewed and he does this? I don't know what to do with my hands. Okay, that's how I feel with my hands in Zoom. They're like, just kind of come out of nowhere. and They're here. Um, so, um, but one of the things I do love about Zoom is that I can see all of your faces. And I, I, can, um, I can see you as you sing and uh, as we pray and as I preach. And that is a, a gift that... Um, that I get to see you. So I'm really thankful for, for this technology, for that. Um, 
And as your pastor, I wrestled with what to speak to you about right now. And I decided to continue in our series on Abraham. It's just trusting that God um, is faithful to, to his word and that he has something for us in it, um, even in the midst of uh, the chaos and craziness that is our lives right now. So we're going to continue in the life of Abraham. And tonight, we're going to be talking about the judgment of God. And I know this is difficult, and I know this is uncomfortable for a lot of us. This, if this is a hard topic for you, I want you to know that you're not alone. And I want to show you that the judgment of God is actually good news. We all actually have a longing for judgment. For righteous judgment. We all want justice. Just thinking about the Lion King, you know the story in the Lion King. Mufasa, the king, is killed in a rebellious plot by his wicked brother Scar. And Scar then frames the rightful heir Simba as the one who murdered Mufasa. And then Scar assumes the throne. And then many years later, when Simba's grown up and he returns to his kingdom, Scar seeks to kill him as well. And he pushes him to the edge of a cliff as these fires rage below. And Scar says to him, oh, where have I seen this before? Hmm, let me think. Oh, yes, I remember. This is exactly what your father looked like before he died. And now here's my little secret. I killed Mufasa. Right? At that moment, what do you want to happen? You want Simba to rip Scar to shreds. Like you want justice against the rebel. You long, we all long for the true king to respond in righteous judgment. See, we all crave righteous judgment. We all crave justice. And I need to say this right now, that there are a lot, um, or I, I know that there are religious quacks right now who are saying that the coronavirus is God's judgment on the world. And I want you to hear me say that that is totally inappropriate. We don't know why. The coronavirus is here. N.T. Wright, who is a British theologian and pastor, uh, he wrote this week in a piece in Time magazine about Christianity's response to the coronavirus, and he says this. He says, it is part, is the part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain why this is happening. Our job as Christians, if you're a Christian and you're with us tonight, our job is to not be able to explain why this happens, but to lament instead to join God in his grief over the brokenness of the world, to join the spirit in his groaning. We're told in Romans 8 that the spirit groans um, with groans too deep for words, and that we're to join Jesus in his tears over the brokenness of the world. The job of Christians is not to offer explanations, but to lament. Well, tonight, as we look at this passage, my hope is that we're going to see the goodness of God's judgment. And so we're going to look at the three characters in the story and ask three questions. So first, the righteous judge. Can we trust God's judgment? Second, the wicked city. Why is God's judgment important? And third, the faithful intercessor. Who stands in our place on our behalf? So the righteous judge, the wicked city, and the faithful intercessor. So what we see in this story is that the righteous judge is God himself. God reveals himself in this passage as the judge of all the earth. If you look at verse 25 with me, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? How do you make sense of the judgment of God in the Bible? In the Bible, God's righteous response to all that is wrong in the world is often called his wrath. Now, how could God's wrath be a good thing? That just sounds like a bad thing to us. How could that be a good thing? 
Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian man, who's a theologian and a professor at Yale, um, writes this. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He then tells us to think of the Rwandan genocide in the last decade of the 20th century, where 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? Did he dote on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? Did he refuse to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirm the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with him? He writes, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. Friends, you need a God of wrath. We need a God of judgment, a God who is just, because we need a God who is actually love and doesn't just give lip service to his care for all his creatures. And we may be skittish about talking about God's wrath, but the church has always understood his judgment and his wrath to be an expression of his goodness. And Abraham knew this about God. Back in chapter 14, um, Abraham said, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. Abraham knew God's power. He knew his generosity. He knew that he was the one who made the world that we live in. This world that we're experiencing right now blossom into spring. He entered into a covenant with this God. And then here in verse 25, we see that he knows that God is the judge of all the earth. Abraham sees clearly that God is both creator and judge, that he is both the first and the last word. And we are given a glimpse into Abraham's relationship with the living God. We are shown this conversation, Abraham interceding for Sodom, Abraham getting to know the heart of his God intimately. This dialogue that begins in verse 17, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? We see that God delights to bring Abraham into his plans, into what he's thinking about. This reminds me of John 15, when Jesus is with his disciples the night before he's betrayed, the night before he goes to the cross, and he says, I have called you friends. Everything I learned from the Father I've made known to you. Jesus doesn't want to hide things from them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to teach them these glorious things because they're his friends. God wants Abraham to know him as his friend. James, too, says that Abraham was a friend of God. He's the only one in Scripture who's called a friend of God. And this didn't give him a false sense of who he was. Abraham doesn't get puffed up because he has a favored relationship with the creator of all things. Think for a moment with me about how people name drop famous people they've met or celebrities that they know, right? Knowing important people puffs us up, but that doesn't happen when you meet the true God. A question for you, does your knowledge of God puff you up or does it humble you? Are you proud of being a Christian or does your relationship with God humble you to the ground? Look at verse 27. Abraham says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Abraham knew where he stood in relation to this great God. And as he began to plead with God to intercede on behalf of the city, he knew 
that even a small number of innocent people were more important than God's sight than the city of, of the wicked. He knew that God's will to save is greater than his will to punish. And yet, in the next chapter, in chapter 19, we read that Abraham got up early and he went to stand on the top of Mount Hebron and he looked down over the land of the plains and there from Mount Hebron, he saw this dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace when God destroyed these cities, when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham saw this catastrophic destruction, fire and darkness. But in chapter 19, there's no complaint from Abraham, which means that he must have considered the judgment on Sodom to be just. Now, I know that you have questions about God's justice and his judgment. And these are good questions and important questions. Like, what about the people who've never heard of salvation in Jesus? What about the little children who've never heard? And we don't know all the answers because God has not revealed them to us. And we would look foolish, I would look foolish, if I pretended to know all the answers. Or I tried to con construct some rational argument for why this or why that. But what we do know is we know the God of the Bible, which is a great comfort. This God has taken Abraham into his confidence to say to him, I want you to understand what I'm doing. He wants us to understand he wants us to know. He wants, he wants to show us what he's like. That's what he's doing here. He's showing Abraham what he's like. He wants, to see, wants us to see what he's like, and he wants us to see that he is absolutely righteous. In John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says that the Father has given full judgment to the Son, that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, is the one to whom God has committed the judgment of heaven and earth. And in order to be the righteous judge, he must be omnipotent, all-powerful. He must be omniscient, all-knowing. Jesus knows all the secrets of your hearts and minds and all who have ever lived. And Jesus will return. He'll appear at the end of time as the judge. And if Jesus' real mission is to come and to judge then what is Jesus, what was Jesus doing on earth? If Jesus' ultimate mission, we're told this in Acts 16 when Paul is, is preaching to the people in Athens, he tells them that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he is the judge. He is the man who's going to judge the whole earth. If this is his mission, then what was he doing on earth beforehand? Well, God knew that the world was unready to meet its judgment. So he came to prepare us. He came ahead of time. Jesus broke into human history from the future to prepare us for his judgment. How did he do this? By taking our judgment in our place. The punishments that my sin deserved, he took these into his body in our place. He came to save us from his judgment. He came to save us from hell. Now, you've heard that word, and when you hear that, you might think that belief in hell is archaic. Maybe it's irrelevant at best or immoral at worst. Our culture says that belief in hell is immoral, that it's unethical, that it's wicked to talk about hell like it actually exists. And God goes out of his way here to show that his judgment is moral and it's upright and it's just. It's, al it's almost funny to read his anthropomorphic language here in Genesis 18 right? This, 
this going down to see whether the people, uh, what they have to say. And he's doing this in verse 21. He's saying, I will go down to see whether, to see what's happened. And if the people crying out, if their cries are justified. And he's doing this, this is here so that we would understand. God is using this language to show us that God doesn't judge until he knows everything, until he knows the motive, the meaning, the significance. He says he'll go down to hear the people's agonizing cry about their appalling outrage. God is not prejudiced. He goes to investigate. When God punishes, it is always moral and right. God is the righteous judge. Let's look now at the city. So why is God's judgment important? 2 Peter 2.6 tells us that God's judgment on Sodom is an exemplary judgment, meaning that it's a pattern of what is going to happen when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. So what do we know about Sodom? We know that Sodom was a rich city, that it was an affluent city, that no one took care of the poor and the needy. The city was known for living in a way that dishonored God and dishonored one another. And back in verse, back in chapter 13, we're told that Sodom and Gomorrah were this well-watered, beautiful, amazing garden paradise. That when you looked at it, when you looked at that land, you would, your imagination would go back to Eden by just how beautiful and rich and fertile the land was. And the writer here is drawing a contrast for us between the beauty of the land and the depravity of those who live there. Today, the land is covered by the southeastern waters of the Dead Sea, never to be rebuilt, just as God said. So did they deserve this? Is the punishment of eternal condemnation disproportionate to our crime of being guilty? Really, the question before us with God's judgment is, is hell fair? Is hell even important? One, one theologian in an article entitled The Importance of Hell so it says that hell is an important part of the Christian faith for a few reasons. And I just want to share a couple of those with you. First, it's important because Jesus taught about it more than it, all the other biblical authors put together. Jesus speaks of eternal fire and punishment as the final residence of the angels and human beings who have rejected God. And he constantly depicted hell as painful fire and outer darkness. Now, if Jesus, who is the Lord of love and the author of grace, spoke spoke about hell more often in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else. It must be a crucial truth. And I know this is so hard for us, but it was so important to Jesus. Why was this important to Jesus? It's important because it shows how infinitely dependent we are on God for everything. Two of the main metaphors that Jesus used for hell are fire and outer darkness. And when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. The reality is far worse than the image. What are the fire and darkness symbols for? Well, they are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. When we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally horrifically and endlessly fall apart. In the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is depart from me. And that's remarkable. To simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why is this? It's because we were originally created to walk in God's immediate presence. 
but the Bible says that sin excludes us from God's face. All of the life and joy and love and strength and meaning we have ever looked for and ever longed for is found in the face of God. And sin removes us from that. God's face to us is like water to a fish. Away from it, our life slowly ebbs away. And when Jesus speaks of being destroyed, when he uses this word of being destroyed in hell, he uses this Greek word that doesn't mean to be annihilated out of existence, but to be total, like when you total your car. To be ruined so as to be useless for its intended purpose. So what is a totaled human soul? It doesn't cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all things a human soul is for. For reasoning, for feeling, for choosing, for giving or receiving love, for giving, receiving joy. I just finished reading Harry Potter all the way through two nights ago. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Lord Voldemort, right? He split his soul seven ways. And in the totaling of his soul, he was void of all that was good, all that was true, all that was beautiful. Friends, the human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God. And all truly human life flows from that. In this world, all of humanity, even those who've turned away from God, are still supported by his gracious hand. That's why we're still capable of wisdom and love and joy and goodness. And our neighbors who don't know God in this way are capable of wisdom and love and joy and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, we're taught in scripture that the result is hell. And this is important because it unveils the seriousness and the danger of living life for yourself. The desire of every human heart is for independence. All of us want to get away from God. But this is the very thing that's most destructive to us. In Genesis 4, Cain is warned not to sin because sin is slavery. It destroys your ability to choose and love and enjoy. And sin also brings blindness. The more you reject the truth about God, the more incapable you are of perceiving any truth about yourself or the world. So what is hell then? Hell is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, to go our own way, to be on our own, to get away from him and his control. J.I. Packer, who's a theologian, writes about this. He says, scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. If the thing you most want to worship is God and the beauty of his holiness, then that is what you will get. And if the thing you want, most want is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony and the presence of God a terror you will flee forever. In the end, there are two types of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God in his infinite justice sends us where we wanted to go. And I want you to hear, as we're thinking about this, I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis has to say about hell in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop. 
but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. There will be a day when there's no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but it's just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Look at Abraham in Genesis 18 and look how different this is than what we see in him. Rather than grumbling and complaining and blaming, we see Abraham pleading and interceding and forgiving. He is standing in the gap between this wicked city and the righteous judge and begging God to spare the city. And in his intercession, in his pleading for the deliverance of Sodom, he points us to the true intercessor, to Jesus Christ, the one who interceded for us, not just by praying, but by giving his life for our own. And if you hear one thing tonight, I want you to hear this. The doctrine of hell is important because it is the only way to know how much Jesus loved us and how much he did for us. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says that no physical destruction can be, can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell, of losing the presence of God. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father. And here's the point in all this. Unless we come to grips with this terrible doctrine, we will never begin to understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. But consider this, if our debt for sin is so great that it will never be paid off in hell, but that our hell would stretch on for eternity, then what do we do with the fact that Jesus said that the payment was finished after only three hours on the cross? That means that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our hells put together. And this makes emotional sense to us when we consider the relationship that he lost. If someone you sort of know denounces you and rejects you, that, that hurts, right? If a good friend denounces you and rejects you, that hurts far worse. If a parent walks out on you and says, I never want to see you again, that is far more devastating still. The longer and the deeper and the more intimate the relationship, the more torturous would be any separation. But look at the Trinity. Look at God. The Son's relationship with the Father is beginningless. It is infinitely greater than the most infinite and passionate, the most intimate and passionate human relationship. So when Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit and the most powerful furnace beyond all imagining. The fire and the darkness of the cross was the full wrath of the Father. And he did it voluntarily for us. On the cross, God himself incarnated as Jesus took the punishment. And he looks at you and he says it was worth it. Jesus Christ, the Savior presented to you in the Bible, waited through hell, waited through hell itself rather than lose you. Friends, his love for you is unmatched. And the answer to our question of God's justice and God's judgment is found on the cross of Christ. For it's there that he not only shows us what we deserve, but it's there that he takes it for you in your place because he loves you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are the righteous judge. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great intercessor who in our place was condemned, that we might be brought to our Father in love. Thank you that you have secured our Father's face for us so that when he looks on us, we experience his delight and joy and gladness and hope and peace and life. This is what you have won for us. Lord, would you make us thankful? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.